Hi everyone, this is Jane K. Dickinson. Welcome to Unshaming Diabetes, where we talk about life, language, and lessons learned from a different angle. I'm here with Susan Guzman today. Susan is a clinical psychologist who focuses on working with people who have diabetes. Susan, welcome. Thank you. I'm going to start by asking you a question I didn't tell you in advance, and that is, what is your favorite vacation spot? I think San Diego, where I live. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I, I, like, I like a staycation. I like to just have time off and be where I live, actually. Yeah. I know that sounds really boring, but... It's not that. boring. It's refreshing. <laughs> Just have some time. Yeah. Susan and I have been working together for, I don't know how many years now, a few years, right? Yeah. Susan is a co-author on the language paper and we have presented together and we have phone conversations quite frequently. After one of our somewhat recent conversations, I said, Susan, we need to make a podcast out of these conversations. Susan is here um, because she is inspirational to me, and I appreciate all of the work that you do, Susan. Why don't you tell me what you are most proud of in your diabetes work? Well, this was a tough question for me. Thinking about what I'm most proud of, the first thing popped into my mind was that I'm proud that I'm the co-founder of the Behavioral Diabetes Institute, which is the first nonprofit devoted to the emotional behavioral aspects of life with diabetes. We got founded in 2004, so for a number of years, we've been really working hard to meet the goals of our of our organization, which is three things. One is to provide affordable services for people with diabetes. The second one is to educate healthcare professionals on the psychological aspects of diabetes. And the third one was to do behaviorally focused research on, you know, those sorts of issues for people with diabetes. So really those three aspects and uh, unfortunately our funding for the patient arm of the the services for people with diabetes was really cut a number of years ago for a lot of complicated reasons. But so basically a lot of our patient care services were eliminated or or cut way back. So that's made me less proud of, of what we've accomplished. And then I was thinking, you know, I'm really proud of our work and the language and the anti-stigma movement. That makes me feel really good that we've had an impact and we can start to see more interest in the professional community and that people with diabetes are starting to recognize the issues that we're trying to promote and they're feeling more empowered to speak up about them. I feel proud about that. But really, I think when you're, what you're really getting at the essence of this question is, you know, what makes my heart sing. And that's really stuff that I have a hard time telling you about because it's individual work. So in my, in my work as a private practice clinician with people with diabetes, you know, helping someone who comes to my door feeling so defeated, scared of their management, not feeling like they are going to live a, a long or healthy life, and maybe I have depression, don't feel worth the work. After spending, you know, working together and helping them see their own strengths so that they can apply that to their diabetes management, I've really had the, the blessing and the opportunity to see lives transformed. That's the thing I'm most proud of. Well, thank you for for doing that and for being that person for 
for people with diabetes. The, the people in the greater San Diego area are lucky to have you. <laughs> Thank you. And speaking of behavioral focused research and the language work that you and I have done together, I'm excited to share that Susan and I are about to embark on some language research. We haven't worked together on research per se so far, and we're going to we're going to be doing that in the new year. So that's very exciting. How did you get started working in diabetes? Well, I did my um, graduate training in clinical psychology with an emphasis in health psychology. And that's the area of um, psychology that's devoted to helping people either recover or, or from um, medical conditions or um, helping them learn how to cope with things. So it's really doing the psychological aspects of medical conditions. And so that was my, that's where my passion is. I always knew I wanted to work with people facing chronic health conditions. I just, you know, I hadn't picked a specialty yet. And when I, when I finished, I got uh, a postdoctoral fellowship at an inner city hospital here in San Diego. And they asked for someone, after a period of time I had been there working in some more of the, more of the emergency room setting, dealing with more mental health issues and crisis. Um, I was really eager to be more on the medical units because that's where my training was focused in. The hospital I was at is a teaching hospital, and so they asked for someone from behavioral health to start rounding with their teaching team on diabetes-related admissions. They had been seeing a lot of unmet needs um, for the, from the psychological aspects of the patients that they were seeing, and, and were looking for someone from behavioral health to join their team. And so I jumped at that opportunity. And so my introduction to diabetes was really to the scary side of, of the disease. So I was seeing people who were um, perhaps starting their first dialysis, or they had just had open heart surgery related to a diabetes complication, or they were in diabetic ketoacidosis. So something like that. And so my initial experiences in that time of training when I was learning about diabetes and, and, and the people who live with it. I still hold in my heart today, and some of still what drives my passions. Some of the themes I heard in their stories, Jane, were just incredible. You know, it's not rocket science what I do. I, you know, after people would crowd around the person and talk about them, and oftentimes with very pejorative language, you know, this is, they would say, oh, this is a 52-year-old diabetic who's non-compliant, who is unmotivated, in denial, and use a lot of words like that. And then they would all leave the room, and I'd pull up a chair and say, what's diabetes been like for you? and then just listen. And what I heard was so many themes in their story. One of the ones that really struck me was they would say things like, you know, Susan, I've had diabetes for 10, 30, 40, 50 years, and no one's ever asked me how I'm doing with this disease. And I heard that over and over and over again. And I, I was shocked by it. And I thought, you know, what are we doing wrong here in San Diego? You know, and now 20 years later, I realized it's really what what we do wrong, if you will, everywhere, including around the world, is that we don't really ask how people are doing and listen. And the other thing that really struck me was there were so many really important, valid, good reasons why people were where they were, you know, un unaddressed, unmet needs, um, whether it was they were struggling with depression or they didn't have access to care or they didn't have good support or they were fired by a doctor because they weren't managing well enough. There was, there was always good reasons why they were there. And at the end of an assessment, my job is to, to offer resources to the, to the people who I had just met with. And so, you know, when, I, when it came time to refer people for mental health support related to their diabetes, I saw that there was nothing. 
And there was not only nothing here in my local community, there was nothing anywhere. And that's, that's what started to drive my passion to start um, the Behavioral Diabetes Institute with my colleague, and uh, probably the most famous diabetes psychologist happens to be a San Diegan, Dr. Bill Polonsky. And so we had met, we had, we had so many shared passions about how, what we would like to do to help people with diabetes. And, and that's how the Behavioral Diabetes Institute was formed. And, you know, working with diabetes is, uh, or people with diabetes is, I feel like it's my life's calling. It's even hard to explain. I just, it feels like that it, it's, it was what I was born to do. It's so neat and awesome to be doing what you were born to do. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's so awesome for people with diabetes that they have you. Turning toward um, the shame around diabetes, and obviously the name of this podcast is Unshaming Diabetes for a reason. Where do you see the most shame in diabetes? If we're talking about settings, I see a lot of, a lot of shaming in the medical setting. But when we're talking about like individuals, the most shame really is for people who are struggling. It may seem counterintuitive because a lot of times the perceptions of people who are really struggling, and by struggling, I mean they have severely elevated um, A1Cs, perhaps they're really struggling with their weight, or perhaps they have complications or, or even multiple complications from diabetes. And those folks have the most shame, I, I think for a number of reasons, but when they come to me, they're often, they don't really want to talk about all of the complications. Sometimes they'll just mention one or they'll say, you know, they'll, they'll minimize their, their experience of, of complications or even minimize their experience of depression. Um, because even for that, there's a, sh- there's a feeling of shame involved. So the people who struggle, I think, have the most shame in my experience. You said there are a number of reasons why people experience shame. And my next question is, why do you think shame is so prevalent in diabetes? So maybe if you want to share a few of those reasons or the, the biggest reason. Well, I think that, that it really goes way back to how we historically have talked about diabetes, what causes it, that really the perception around diabetes is a self-inflicted disease. And for people with type 1 diabetes, it may not be perceived as a self-inflicted disease, but if you're not managing it perfectly, it's because you're bad. You've done something wrong. Lord forbid, if you develop complications, it's because not only were you bad and done something wrong, but now you're being punished. And I think that's, that's even true in the healthcare system. So when you go to the general public, when we've really tried to prom- promote the prevention aspects of type 2 diabetes, the message in that inadvertently is that if you if you didn't prevent it, then there must be something wrong with you. So there is a lot of shame for people who go on to develop it. And last week, I, I um, had received a phone call from a woman who's 80 years old who was just diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, LADA. Mm-hmm. And she said her doctor, first of all, she was misdiagnosed for obvious reasons as, as having type 2 diabetes. And then she says, when they finally figured out that I don't have type 2 diabetes, I have type 1 diabetes, it was after a whole lot of trial and error, things that didn't work. And then they finally did the appropriate testing and saw that she no longer had a functioning pancreas. And so she said that her doctor told her that her type 1 diabetes was caused by stress. And she says, so not only is this, I've really been having a hard time getting my blood glucose levels stabilized since diagnosis. She says, I, and now I also realize that I'm to blame for it in the first place. So, so we still even mess up when diagnosing 80-year-old ladies <laughs> with type 1 diabetes. 
it, it's and and from I had to keep saying over and over and over and over again, it's not your fault. Yeah. It's not your fault. You don't give yourself diabetes. Diabetes is not a choice. Yeah. So you know, like the shame and the blame and the stigma around diabetes, it almost doesn't matter which type you have. It's a blurry, a really blurry line. I think that the, really, in general, the biggest problem around the shame of diabetes has to do with how we talk about diabetes, and really are, are related to what causes it. And if you're not perfectly managed, it's because you're doing something wrong. Really, sort of the underlying message is: you give it to yourself. How you manage it is it. If if you're not doing perfectly, you're, you're you're to be punished either with more medication or with scolding or shaming or fear. How do you think we can work to remove that shame? If every major diabetes organization joined hands and started to change their messaging, but I was on one of the major uh, um, nonprofit and diabetes websites today, just because um, I'm going to give a talk tomorrow, and I was I wanted to have the current statistics. And once again, I saw on there, diabetes is the leading cause of blah, 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 blah. And the reason that that, that bothers me so much is because it's only half the story. Because it's not diabetes per se that causes those things. It's diabetes with, with, with elevated mel- metabolic numbers. So diabetes with elevated A1C, elevated blood pressure, elevated LDL cholesterol, over time, that is the leading cause of all those things. And we say at BDI, well-managed diabetes is the leading cause of nothing. That doesn't mean that people who don't try and have good numbers don't ever run into complications. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we know that the odds are good with good care. You can live a long and healthy life with diabetes. And if, if every major diabetes organization and the pharmaceutical companies and other stakeholders joined hands and said, that's the message we're going to start to promote, that you can live a long and healthy life with diabetes. And we all took action to promote that message of hope. I really do think it would shift. Well, and I think that's the purpose of the language work that you and I are, are doing. And you know, a lot of other people around the country and the world are working on the language of diabetes. To me, the point of the language movement is to spread a message of hope instead of shame. Yeah. So we're unshaming diabetes and we're adding hope. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's what unshaming means, really. That's, that's what you do to unshame. Yeah. You, sh- you, sh- you, you say that that message of shame is wrong, and this is the message to replace it, that you can live a long and healthy life with diabetes, and it's not your fault if you have it. Yeah, well said. I think you just answered my next question right there, which is, or was, if you could send a message to the world regarding diabetes, what would it be? Yeah, that's it. I mean, diabetes is not a choice, and if you have it, there's a lot you can do to live a long and healthy life. What is the most important thing you've learned working with many people who have diabetes? What, what's the most impor- important thing you've learned about their being able to live well with diabetes? I think when I initially started in diabetes, I was thinking of living well as a series of numbers, right? It was all about numbers. Where are their numbers at? What's your A1C mostly? It was mostly about A1C. And then the more you learn about diabetes, you realize there's more numbers involved than that. There's individual glucose numbers. There's how often are you low. Then there's, you know, add in blood pressure, add in LDL cholesterol, add in, you know, how many checks did you get in? Are you following up? I mean, it's all numbers. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, you know, I've seen people with diabetes across the whole number spectrum, people who have, you know, very high 
numbers and people who have extremely low numbers and many people who fall somewhere in between. And that didn't seem to be a measure of wellness at all. I really see wellness now as an attitude. Even people who live with very severe complications from diabetes can be well because wellness is an attitude. It's how you get up and greet and face the day every day. I heard a statistic or read it one time that people who rate their their overall health in general, not specific to diabetes, as excellent on an excellent, good, fair, poor scale are likely to live longer than people who rate it good, fair, or poor. Hmm. And um, I believe that. Mm-hmm. I, I really do. I think it makes sense to me. I mean, I haven't seen the study, but I am very purposeful whenever anybody asks me that little assessment in a healthcare provider's office, I always answer excellent. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, because I believe it also because it's true, but because I, it's an attitude. How you rate your overall health is an attitude. It's true. Susan, if you had to choose one, who is your diabetes hero? My diabetes hero is actually a good friend of mine. Her name is Sharla. She's my hero because of what we just talked about, this attitude. So Sharla was diagnosed in a naval hospital when she was 15 years old with type 1 diabetes. And they purposefully put her in a room with someone who was facing complications. I think she was on dialysis and had amputations. And because they wanted to show her what was going to happen to her if she didn't take perfect care of herself. Meanwhile, they handed her a pamphlet that said all of the complications that would happen to her inevitably. That was back in the days when we used to tell people they would be dead by 30 of horrible complications. So as a teenager, she was she decided, well, if I'm going to die of this damn disease, I'm going to enjoy my life. She really um, worked hard to do as little as possible to manage her diabetes. She struggled with an eating disorder. She struggled with depression over the years. And, and diabetes does what it does. It took its toll on her body. When I met her, Charlotte had already turned her diabetes around. She'd gotten treatment for her eating disorder. Um, I spoke with her yesterday, and her A1C is a 6.8. So, I mean, her she she now does the whole job of diabetes management, and and does it you know without really thinking about it anymore. She 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 has shared with me so many insights in that transformation that she went through. That she's really um, she's the one that convinced me that wellness is an attitude. She um, she's had a stroke. She had a heart transplant about eight years ago. Um, she's legally blind. She has severe neuropathy, and she's a beautiful person. She's caring and loving, and that part of her works just fine. Every day is a a struggle, and every day she chooses life. And that's why she's my hero. Wow. You mentioned, without using the term, you mentioned scare tactics. And that could take us on a completely separate tangent. So I made a note that the next time I interview you, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I definitely, because we didn't even talked about that piece that we wrote together. <laughs> true. Accidentally. <laughs> right. What do you still want to accomplish in your diabetes work? You know, if I could have my dream come true with, with respect to my diabetes work, it would be that, that we were able to really affect change in messaging so that more and more people really started to get it. Um, like last night, I was watching one of the late night comedy shows. And and again, diabetes was the butt of the joke. Santa Claus had really bad diabetes. They, I'm sure they don't even understand why that's not only 
inaccurate, but harmful. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 so in my, in my dream that my next phase of work would really be able to affect change in, in the, in the messaging around diabetes and have more people care. I, I was reading in, in that, you know, by 2025, diabetes rates are expected to have doubled. If that's true, most of us are going to have diabetes. Maybe now's the time to look at it different. Good point. And finally, when there is no more diabetes, what will you do to fill your time? What a quality problem that would be. <laughs> well, seeing I, I trained it to, to work with people with chronic health conditions and disabilities, I would, I would move on to the next underserved uh, conditions, spend my time with that, or I'd take up some art, maybe. There we go. Well, Susan, thank you so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate your taking the time to answer my questions and to talk about unshaming diabetes. Well, I wish you the best in this effort, Jane. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. This is Unshaming Diabetes, and I'm Jane K. Dickinson. You can also find me at www.janekdickinson.com, where I blog about everyday life with diabetes. Sometimes topics come up in this podcast that I'd like to explain or discuss further, and I will do that on my blog. So please find me there. Thanks again, and have a fantastic day.